Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you want legendary service. If you, you want, want sweeter discounts. Save by bundling auto and home with insurance. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Andrew Menzel. Joining me, as always, is Paul Dennett. Paul, I want to start off by saying I've been missing cricket, but I've watched a ton of TV in the last month or two. I've never watched so many TV shows in my life. How about you? How are you passing the time? Yesterday, I just watched Alan Border belt 127 not out against the West Indies in the first final of the SCG in 1984-85, and it never fails to inspire me. If you've never watched it, if you're too young, do yourself a favour and watch it. It's uh, Garner, Holding and Marshall bowling express. No one else can handle them. Borders hitting um, balls to the boundary. The, the sound off the bat, it's just something else. It's, that's what of I've been doing. Of course it was. They haven't been watching TV shows. Uh, you know, when you talk about that, <laughs> it, it's like um, back then scoring a 50 over century was a, was a massive accomplishment. I mean, Back then it was saying that you didn't quite have a, lo- a long enough time to make a century in 50 overs and now they're making centuries in 20 overs. Also, because the West Indies were so good, I looked, that was the, like their 93rd one day of the West Indies and it was only the third time anyone had ever scored a century against them and Borders 127 not out was the highest score ever scored against the West Indies in a one day. That's, that's how hard it was to get 100. So I just want to run through for you listeners some of the TV shows I've been watching. I'll just give you a list. So if you're struggling without cricket, uh, Jack Ryan, amazing, also on Amazon, Shit's Creek, Done, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, the sporting documentary everyone's talking about. That was pretty good. Uh, the Good Place, I finished that. I've just started The People versus OJ Simpson, a miniseries about his trial. And then finally, I'm finishing up with Brock Meyer, which is about a a baseball commentator's journey through life, which is uh, fascinating. So if you're bored, go and find one of those shows. Paul, are you still watching The Office? We've kind of had a bit of a, hi- a hiatus, but uh, we're halfway through. We will return. I've started watching Friday Night Lights. Please don't give me any spoilers, but that's pretty good. The first few shows of that, it's about American football. And also I've watched um, the highlights of the the final test match of the 74-75 Ashes, the one match that England won in that series. And so that was um, extraordinary viewing as well. I'm still working my way through Warney Week. I recorded all of his uh, matches that he put on that uh, Foxtel presentation for the week, and I'm just working my way through them match by match. Um, But, listeners, in this episode of Cricket Unfiltered, we're going to review Episode 7 of The Test, and we've also got Can't Let It Go. But before we get into that, Paul, there's no real cricket headline, so I thought I just wanted to touch on a few things that Mitchell Stark said earlier in a, in a Zoom press conference. Um, firstly, which is, I guess, no surprise to us, he has not played cricket at all for eight weeks, no batting, no bowling, nothing. And he said how valuable that time is with his wife, considering um, you know their, their schedules often don't align and they don't spend much time together. So that was quite 
uh, a non-interesting insight. The next one was, though, um, he was asked if he would have a problem with domestic players going over to play in the IPL, say, this September, October, and missing, say, Shield cricket and domestic Australian cricket to play in the IPL. I'm just curious, would you see that as a problem? Not in these circumstances. I think that the the, the politics of world cricket, um, Pete Lawler has explained it pretty clearly that it will be in Australia's best interests for, for Australian players to go across there. Also, I, I look back at Kevin Peterson's argument that ultimately you are going to become a better player playing in Indian conditions against those quality bowlers than you will playing in your home conditions, which you've done many, many times before anyway. I sort of concur with that one, actually. I'm not 100% comfortable with the idea uh, because, you know, we don't want our local players going and playing in another country's domestic competition and taking them from our comps. But in this situation, it seems very prudent, especially if we could use that to lure India here for the summer and maybe some extra one-day internationals that will help the coffers. He was asked whether he thinks that uh, Australia should play more pink ball tests against India this summer um, because they would be good products for the TV networks. Stark said he wasn't into the idea of playing more than one test, and I agree with him. I think if we were to play India next summer, one pink ball test is enough for me. I feel the same, and that's partially because although I think the pink ball is very good and I'm a fan of it, I still think it just needs to be 10% better. There are too many periods where it gets flat and slow, uh, and then um, the opposite happens when it goes goes a bit crazy. So they're not far away from where it needs to be, but uh, until they get there, then I'd, I'd say less is more. He also said that the first Aussie squad Zoom meeting is this week. They're all back from their leave period, so JL's... Going to get the boys together on a Zoom and have a, a pep talk, no doubt. Wouldn't mind being a fly in the wall for that one. They should just continue the test documentary. <laughs> just recording, yeah. That'd be good. All right. So uh, that was Mitchell Stark. He didn't have much else to say. He he obviously is not a fan of not being able to shine the ball. And he thinks that you do need some alternative um, because you need the ball swinging. And I, I don't think anyone can argue with that. I mean, how can anyone put up an argument that they need to do something to help the bowlers in this situation? I don't understand why he wouldn't allow an artificial substance for this period. You know, it could be easily brought in to give the bowlers some help without being able to shine the ball. Well, that's the plan, isn't it? Oh, that's what they're working on. If they just go ahead and have no shining of the ball and you still only get a new ball after 80 overs, it'll be a disaster. Uh, if they can't find a way to put an artificial substance on there, then my wacky idea is the right answer. That is to say, you get a new ball after 40 overs, mm. but you can keep the old ball uh, and, and alternate. If you want to get the spinner come on, they can keep the old ball. Uh, otherwise, every 40 overs, you get a new ball or something like that. That would, you know, that would be half decent. I don't mind that idea. And I'm usually very skeptical of your crazy ideas, but you know, bringing in a new ball, say, after 50 overs and being able to use that or the other ball for 30 overs to me sounds a good one um, and it wouldn't change the integrity of the game too much. No, it's been done before. I think the 1948 tour of England, Don Bradley didn't so. believe his eyes when he went over that they, um, I think they were giving them a new goal every 50, 50 overs or every 55 overs and Bradman's like, I've got Lindwell and Miller and um, you're going to give us a new ball every, okay, cool. That'll be great. Let's do it. That sprung to mind as soon as you – I can't believe I forgot that, that ball regulation from the 48 tour. <laughs> One other idea that um, I've always um, been a proponent of that potentially could now be put in place is I often think that the, the number of stumpings you make by being up to the stumps as a keeper is exceeded by the number of catches that you drop and that a keeper would be better off being three metres back to the spinner. Well, maybe with social distancing, that will be a requirement. The keepers can't stand up to the stumps and we might actually see a, an improvement in the um, – in the way that we could get us to do things. Definitely. Well, listeners, we're going to take our first break of the show. Then we're going to be back to review episode seven of the test. When we come out of the break, you'll hear Mitchell Stark. Yeah, good morning, um, Mitch. I've just been binging Amazon's The Test over the last few weeks. I was wondering uh, if you've watched it and what you thought of it, and if not, why? Haven't watched it, no. Uh, I was there, saw it all firsthand. So uh, I'm sure I'll come around to watching it. I, I have seen an episode that they gave us before the release just to see what it was going to be like and the rest. And I, I think it looks fantastic. I think it's um, from, from all the people that have mentioned to me that they've they've watched it, whether I've spoken to them on the golf course or anything like that, they um, 
a lot of them have loved it. So, yeah, from all reports, it, it, it's um, it's great. And from the one episode that I saw, it's been put together fantastically. So I'm sure I'll, I'll come around to watching it eventually. Um, but yeah, I, I was there for, for yeah. most of the 12 months. So I'm, I'm pretty aware of what happened. Yeah. Did you find the camera quite invasive throughout that process? For the first week or two, it was different. Yeah. Um, obviously, that was the first time that we've had a um, someone with a camera around 24-7. So for, for the first week or two that, that it was there, that I was around, it was, was quite different. But Andre, who, who was the the man in charge with the cameras, he was he was brilliant. He yeah, he was very much a part of the team. He had he had the, the trust of, of the group for the for the duration. And I guess once that, that first period of of time passed where now there was a camera around the change room. Yeah, he, he was very good at, at knowing I guess where to where to put himself to to be out of the way, if you like, but was able to still capture all, all the fantastic um, footies that he had. That was Mitchell Stark, Australian fast bowler. And, Paul, I find it astounding that if you're in the Australian team, you haven't watched the test. I understand maybe he feels uncomfortable, but I just can't believe that. I understand it. I think that um, people are different. Some people never watch the, the stuff that they're in. Uh, I do like his honesty though in admitting that it was difficult having the camera there for the first couple of weeks we haven't really heard that from any of the players um but you know stark is quite a private person so i can see that you know having the camera in his space would have been something that he he had to adapt to let's get into episode seven of the test my favorite episode so far it centers around the first two tests of the ashes series and um you know it starts with sort of building up the significance of the ashes and, and we see um, the, the, the greetings in the hotel of um, the ashes squad and, you know, the Australia race squad, or, sorry, the, the Australian players all coming together after the world cup. My favorite episode as well, it just instantly lifted several gears. And I don't know whether that's just because the ashes are so good or whether some of the, the lead up had started to seem a little bit samey. Uh, but this was this was magic, and it was funny that um scene in the in the foyer shows how much access they or how much footage they took. The fact that at that time they wouldn't have regarded Marnus Labuschagne as being someone that they were going to follow at all, and yet they've got detailed footage of him greeting Justin Langer and greeting other players. Presumably, they've also got footage of Jackson Bird greeting Justin Langer and other players that they binned. But I suppose that's what you've got to do: take a, a, a million rolls of uh, a million feet of film because you never know what's going to be uh, where where the story is going to take you. Yeah, and they're starting to sort of add characters in. So Marnus is being added into the story now, and obviously he plays a big role in the Ashes. And we'll see soon. Jofra Arch is another character that they introduce into the narrative. Uh, we JL welcomes Steve War into the group. He's replacing Ricky Ponting as the kind of team mascot. And, and that's a joke, by the way. And JL's <laughs> saying how uh, inspirational Steve War is. And, uh, you know, War says it's a privilege to be back. But I thought it was interesting where he said in a team meeting, he thinks to, to win the series and retain the Ashes, that you're really going to need the right temperament to cope with the external noise. Yeah, um, and he spoke well. But the main thing with Steve War being there, and people were talking about it at the time, as an Australian cricket fan, it's just a sense of comfort that, Nothing's going to go wrong when when Steve was there, and it was just I just loved seeing him arrive. Um, I've got this stat for you that I've worked out, which I don't know whether it's relevant or not. It's partially coincidental, but in my entire life, if Steve War has been involved in an Australian Ashes campaign in England, Australia has left with the Ashes. If Steve War has not been involved, Australia has left without the Ashes. So. I was born in 77. The 77 Ashes were just before I was born, but them, 81, 85, Steve War not involved. Australia loses them. 89, 93, 97, 01, Steve War as a player is involved. Australia takes the Ashes home. 05, 9, 13, 15, Steve War not involved. No Ashes. Back in the fold in 2019, the Ashes come home. It's a simple formula. We need to take him over there for 2023. We had him for the 99 World Cup, won that. We didn't have him for the 29 World Cup, 2019 World Cup, didn't win that. Yeah, we had that joke ponting. What did he ever do? (laughs) (laughs) We have a a quick glimpse at the trial game. Uh, Look, I thought that game was important, but they probably didn't need to spend too long on it. Uh, And then then we see the nice part of this where they've announced the Ashes squad, and obviously there's a fair portion of those two teams that didn't get picked. But we, we see the good stories of 
you know, Marnus being picked. And he, I liked his quote where he said, you know, you don't want to be the guy that just gets picked. You want to be the guy that wins Australia the Ashes. And I thought that was a pretty insightful quote from him that he didn't want to just be part of the squad. He wanted to play a big role. Yeah, and he did. That's amazing. Um, I like Michael Neesa saying that I'd actually booked a holiday and then um, the, the surprise of having to be picked. I, I just think uh, I sent out a tweet at the time how historic it was that this was by a long, long way the latest in the year that a Nash's squad for Australia had ever been picked. That Obviously, that partially because they started so late, but for a Nash's squad to be picked late in July, I was looking back through the records, back in the 1880s, they had to pick the Ashes squad the year before in order to get over there in time. So... <laughs> Things have certainly changed. I think we need to learn from this that by the time the first test started, everyone involved and everyone around the periphery, periphery had been playing cricket in England, whether in the World Cup, in um, Australia A Tours or in um, county cricket. I think the preparation was excellent and we need to make sure that that happens in, in the future as well. Yeah, you speak about that Australia A Tour. One player that was picked for the Ashes squad from that tour is Matt Wade. And there's a nice little story in this episode about... Wade almost turning down um, his selection into the Australia A squad because he wanted to stay at home with his wife Julia, who just had a they just had a baby together, uh, Goldie, and she said no, you got to go. And he he went on tour on the Australia A tour and he left when his newborn child was just four days old, and it was a very powerful scene. We had Julia Wade in tears, but um, saying that she wanted him to go as hard as it was. You know, she wanted him to go, and I thought that was a powerful scene and a bit of an interesting backstory. Definitely powerful, and it makes you realise, as always, how much the, the the hidden impact is on players, especially given that there was every chance that Wade could have gone over there, played all the Australia A games, and uh, you know, ended up not getting selected and come home and feel like, well, I missed all those early weeks with my newborn baby for, for not much. So it's gratifying uh, that he was selected and, and then contributed to an Ashes victory. Yeah, made two tons and justified his selection. But yeah, God, it's got to be hard leaving your baby after four days. Um, so yeah, good on him. Good on him for putting the team first. Back in the old days, you would have already been over in England at a pub warming up while the baby was born. <laughs> Now, uh, Justin Langer in a meeting, and I wonder if this is coming because it's not in the, the documentary this episode. He, t- he talked about how they were going to have specific match selection that they've got, you know, five or six bowlers and they're going to pick a horses for causes. And, and it played out throughout the Ashes. But we didn't get any of that drama in either of these test matches. Like in the documentary, there was no selection drama at all. But, you know, it's quite a big call in that first test of the Ashes to go with Siddle, Pattinson and Cummins and have Hazelwood and Stark on the sideline. So I, I, I was interesting that it wasn't touched on. Even in the second test, Hazelwood came in, made a big impression. He was almost one of the Wisden Five Cricketers of the Year because of those four tests. It's not even mentioned. Yeah, I think it's probably because they had just so much um, amazing content in this one that it just couldn't make the cut. Uh, it's interesting, and there has been criticism of that that policy and that especially the fact that Maybe had Stark played in the fifth test uh, instead of Siddle, Australia would have won that. I understand that criticism. It was made worse by the fact that Siddle was a bit injured in the fifth test and didn't bowl to his normal high standard. I kind of still liked the idea that they were being very thoughtful about it and they were saying, we're going to adapt to the English conditions. And they made the point that too often they've gone overseas in the past and just sort of said, we're going to play the Australian way. We're just going to, you know, smash the ball and take wickets and that's, that's it. Here they realised they maybe had to adjust and learnt from previous Ashes series. So I like the way that they they went about it. Maybe some of the details you could quibble with. Mm. Now, Tim Payne's pre-first test press conference at Edgbaston, a very amusing moment when the, the press the the English press asked him if he could Tim Payne could name a more intimidating ground than Edgbaston, and Tim Payne said, "I could name you fifteen more intimidating grounds." And then this is what I liked. There was a bit of footage of um, Payne and Brian Murgatroyd, the, the press manager for the Aussie team on that tour, walking down the stairs. And Murgus said something and Payne said, look, mate, you don't play against the ground. Um, which which <laughs> I know Payne's comments probably not true. Like, you know, Edgbaston is a hostile atmosphere, but I liked his attitude like, you know, I'm not, not, we're not scared of this ground. 
yeah, it was funny. It, it sort of showed just um, how little Australia's Australia's players know about the England cricket setup. That it would be in in England, Edgbaston is known as their their ground where they win because the crowd is like a football crowd. I would liken it to someone coming to Australia and someone saying to them, "You must be excited at playing at the MCG on Boxing Day," and then and them saying, "Why?" Um, it, it was as, it was as equivalent as that, but it was probably a good thing because. I think the Australians then did get a bit of a surprise and they realised, oh, um, this is quite an intimidating uh, ground. We'll get to it, but Cameron Bancroft was clearly intimidated by by the crowd. And as I'll probably mention far too many times during the show, I was there, I was at Edgbaston, it was a great experience. And the crowd noise was simply superb. Now, this first day of this Ashes series was particularly special in my memory for many reasons, it was the return of the sandpaper trio. It was the beginning of the Ashes. It really was a momentous moment in Australian cricket. I think a really, a, a really special moment. And we see the Australian team come out into the arena and they're roundly booed by the English crowd. And then Australia wins the toss and they elect to bat. And Bancroft said he wasn't able to block out the crowd noise as well as he would have expected. He, he said he knew a lot of people hated him for his mistake in South Africa. But I enjoyed that honesty that it, it actually got to him. Yeah, me too. And Payne also made a comment about the noise when it gets so loud, it has a physical uh, presence to it that you just think, wow, this is something uh, beyond the pale. And if you've only ever watched sport in Australia, you might not realise um, that this can be the case. Maybe if you've been to a Sydney derby in the A-League where the atmosphere can get very loud and Edgbaston had that quality. And I should say, in defence of their crowd, boos sound very loud and they really stand out. The majority of the crowd weren't booing. I have no doubt I would boo three. If they were three pommies playing the first test of an Ashes here and they'd been done for cheating, I'm no doubt I'd probably boo them. So (laughs) let me put that out there. So Bancroft's out. Bancroft says, you know, he wanted the perfect story, you know, return to the team, make 200s in the game and sort of put the history behind him. But he didn't get that. We're still waiting for those tons. Yeah, I felt a bit sorry for him uh, because he's not going to get the perfect story, even if he does come back with loads of runs. Nothing can erase what happened in South Africa. And uh, he's done his time and I've certainly uh, forgiven him for it and, and all of that. But it will still be... Sadly for him, unless something dramatic occurs, like with Trevor Chappell and the underarm, it will be the first thing that um, anyone ever thinks about when they think of his name. So Steve Smith comes to the crease. Paul, tell me, what was it like when he walked out to bat? You were there. Uh, again, I would say that uh, there were certainly boos, and, but I was surprised that there weren't more boos. Again, it comes through on the, um, on the audio as though he was being roundly booed, but the majority of people weren't, but um, that's the atmosphere is still hostile. Even the, the people who aren't doing, they're still um, massively cheering on the English. Uh, and I remember I, I got talking to some of the English guys around me and um, was saying, I think I think that when, it, when he was about 40-something and they were saying, we well, might get a 50, and I said, uh, he might get a 100, and they all laughed uproariously, good-naturedly, but, um, you know, what a stupid Aussie. So it was, um, it was a very, very satisfying day. I think probably the best innings I've ever seen in cricket. Well, it was not only a satisfying day, but just an incredible performance by Smith. At one point, Australia uh, were 122 from eight. It looks all over, but then Pete Siddle gets out there and he sticks with Smith. Siddle makes 44. He gets Smith to a to a famous hundred. I remember that that the hundred was just so special. I mean, I was buzzing at home in my living room on the couch. You were buzzing at the ground. It was just a phenomenal effort, not just in the the, the, the coming back from the band, but in the series. I mean, it almost turned here. Australia get rock and rolled for 140. Could have been it could have been one nil England very very easily. And I like Siddle's contribution in this because. He's a wise old head. It was a very tough situation. And he was the perfect man to go out there and, and stick with Smith. I also want to shout out to Travis Head. He got 35 from 61. And that was when it was absolutely at its toughest. Yes, Anderson was injured and was out of the attack. But Smith himself was finding it very, very difficult. Smith did mention that and it became a, a feature of the match that somewhere in the 40 over mark, 40 to 50 over mark, I think Smith 
being himself said it was the 43rd over, he had a, a remarkably precise figure, the ball softened and it became just that little bit easier. Travis had kind of got them to that point. I think if Siddle had come in much earlier, he would have nicked off and been gone. So, yeah, Siddle played superbly. But I think that even if you took all the circumstances away from the innings, Smith's innings was a great one simply because it was so difficult. And for so long, he just had to battle and survive, score the runs when he could, and then gradually he forced his presence on the game. And then to finish up with 144 or whatever it was, it's just extraordinary. Um, I can't speak highly enough about it. And one of the most enjoyable days at sport at a sporting event I've ever spent. I concur. Australia made 284 after being eight for 122. We also see Bancroft saying, you know, that we have a choice to live in the suffering of the mistake or move on. And this is put in there because we're about to see the Aussies get, you know, jeered as they uh, go to the bus and then on the bus. Look, Bancroft has this knack of doing like terrible attempts at like psychology and philosophy. Um, Good batter. That's it. And then they get on the bus from the ground at Edgbaston, and, and this is a long sequence. They really try and show you what the Australian team was up against. Loads of drunks and uh, people hurling abuse at them, and some of it was good natured. There was one guy just, you know, doing the sandpaper motion on his hand, walking past the bus. Uh, what, what was it like on the, when you left the ground that day? I, I saw them going to the bus on a different day, and it was exactly as it was shown. There was a big crowd of people hanging around the bus, England fans screaming out, cheat, cheat, cheat. And it was a really hostile atmosphere that you knew you were alive when you were standing there. Um, the one thing I really didn't like and uh, was when they started singing, we saw you cry on the telly. Uh, I just thought that's disgusting. Like, whatever you think of what Smith did, he's not a criminal. And he was breaking down on international television. If you can't have empathy for a fellow human in that moment, then there's something wrong with you. So I found that beyond mm. the pale uh, and a couple of other things. But on the whole, I, I think that the England crowd were fantastic, but with a few exceptions. Mm, I, I think empathy is one thing, that, but I think there is just an element. When you're, trying to, when you're trying to have a go at someone, you just go for a weak point. And the weak point was Smith crying on the, the telly. So it's an obvious one. Um, but I agree with you, the dickheads. So we, we see this scene, but I like, David Warner, he sat on the front, in the front seat of the bus, front seat. He was willing, you know, obviously he had a big part in the sandpaper thing and he just was front and center in that bus. I'm going to take it all. He smiled. So whatever you can say about him, that, that was probably appropriate that he just sat up the front and took it on the chin. Uh, And then sort of fast forwards now to day four in the test and uh, Smith's uh, second hundred in the match and, you know, Australia trying to work their way in, into the lead. And I, I like Smith seeing Jerusalem before he went out to bat. And he talked as well how the atmosphere just didn't affect him. And you hear some of the other players are struggling with it. But for Smith, he knows he's the best at batting. And when he's out there, he's talked about it as being his happy place. And, um, you know, I, I said to you before, if I was in an American pub and they suddenly said we're having a trivia competition and, oh, we've got a cricket question coming up, um, I'd feel like so excited and arrogant and ready to go, you know, bring it on. I'm going to get this right and be a star. I think that's how Smith must feel all day long when he's batting. It must be a glorious feeling. Yeah, as an aside, I would say before COVID lockdown, I would at least every week get at least one or two messages from friends who were at pub trivia and there was a cricket question and they were under the phone or in the toilet texting me. <laughs> I'm sure that's happened to you. So, you know, I loved a bit where Tim Payne was talking about Smith and I think this is the, the – sort of clear indication of the gap between Smith and most test cricketers where Payne says, you know, I'm at one end at the non, the non-strikers end watching Smith, Smith bat and he makes it look so easy. He's got so much time. He just makes it look like a piece of cake. Then the strike changes and Payne's on strike and Payne says, I found it so hard. It was, you know, really difficult conditions, really hard batting and Smith's making it look easy. I think, you know, Payne's a, a test cricketer, a good cricketer, but, the gap between those two is a large one. Yeah, I, I think it also reflects how confident and comfortable Tim Payne is in his situation. There was another scene there where uh, Steve Smith was getting photographed in the long room and Tim Payne walked behind and kind of photobombed and took her and, and, and got a photo with him and said something like, 
yeah, not often you get to be photo photographed with the best in the world, mm-hmm. having a bit of a chuckle. Another captain might look at that and think, why are they, you know, I'm the captain. I should be the one sitting here for this um, portrait photo, not this clown. Yet Payne is so comfortable in his position. He knows that he's uh, doing a great job as captain and he knows that Steve Smith's a vastly better batsman than him as he is for almost anyone. So I think it reflects well on Payne's confidence. And we see Steve Smith edging to that second century of the match and uh, the the lead against England building. And I love the scene where Steve Waugh looks to the camera and says, the Poms are nervous. I think we've got them. And, uh, and then Smith makes his second century of the match and Warner jumps up with a huge celebration. Yeah, I hadn't seen that before, but it, that seemed really unaffected and natural that Warner was massively into Steve Smith's second hundred. And that's, that's great to see. Uh, personal anecdote, we were sitting in the Holly stand that day, the stand which is famous for being the most sort of brutal stand in um, in world cricket. And my mate, when the 100 was scored, suddenly unfurled this massive Australian flag. And instead of um, pointing it to the crowd, to the ground, we, at his instruction, turned around and pointed it back up to the vast Holly stand behind us, sort of um, mocking them all. We sat down. Then the fruit started coming. I got hit twice in the back of the head with um, with a strawberry and a mini something like that, and they, they hurt a little bit. Um, and it was a little bit uh, – I, I turned around and looked at some guys, and they were not at all amused. They were sort of staring at me as if to say, you better watch yourself, champion. So <laughs> that's a pretty – Yeah, I mean, not all moment. English fans are great. I mean, I've been to football games. I've been to cricket. There's a lot of English fans that should be banned from sporting events. Oh, well, that was the only little bit. And that, the, no, I, I'd say that that day was one of the most enjoyable days I've ever had at sport. Um, but the fans were fantastic. Um, just, just the nastiness to- when people have too many beers, too many pints, and they get a bit nasty and they get a bit toey. You know, we all got friends like that, but I don't <laughs> like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, apart from a bit of fruit to the back of the head, the rest of the day was fine. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think you've had significant brain damage since then. So. <laughs> I actually recorded a few pieces of, uh, from, of audio from the ground. I'll, I'll play some of that now. And remember when you hear this, that the audio doesn't do it justice. Um, multiply it by a factor of about 50 and you'll get the true sound. Sounds boisterous. So Smith makes his second hundred of the game. Then Matthew Wade comes out to bat. One of my favourite players, a little general, the Napoleon of the, the cricket team. And he, he makes this uh, test 15. He rocks the bat like a baby and um, sort of thank his wife for the sacrifices. And then he makes a brilliant ton in that second innings and takes the game way away from England in their set 398. What was it like watching Wade's ton? Uh, it was glorious because the uh, the crowd were going berserk. It was late in the day. They were um, the beer was really starting to tell in you know, it, not in a bad way, and uh, it was just a free for all. I think uh, Pattinson cracked a fifty as well uh, late on at at, at uh, warp speed. Um, it was just a pleasure to be watching them really up in the ante and knowing that um, that the game was was feeling secure. It felt like Australia were all, all but certainties. And then Australia goes on to win on the last day at Edgbaston. I did like the bit that showed Nathan Lyon getting very nervous before the fifth day of the Edgbaston test because he knew there'd be a lot of pressure on him to deliver on that wearing wicket. And uh, he did deliver. Um, he did look nervous, Lyon. But when they came off the ground and, you know, it's the first win for Australia since 2001 on that ground, I liked Pat Cummins laughing in the dressing room and they called this a fortress <laughs> yeah that was good uh, <laughs> they should play that to the england side next time we play there 
And then we move on from the first test at Edgbaston to London for the second test at Lord's. And, and this is where Marnus is brought into the, the show even bigger than he was before. And we get a little bit about Siddle talking about Marnus's unique character. And there's a little bit of a touch on the story that we heard all summer. I don't know if we need to go it again, but guess what? Marnus and Smith are good mates and they both like batting. I don't know, did you hear that story where apparently, and I can't believe anyone in the Australian team has agreed to this. Marnus agreed to pack up Smithy's kit at the end of every test and he'd get a free bat. He called it the deal of the summer. I think it was the deal of the summer because I'm, I'm like Smith. I would be absolutely delighted if someone would pack up my gear. And given that Smith would have all the bats he could want, giving away a bat is nothing. But I can see from Labashane's point of view that, you know, I get to get one of Steve Smith's bats. So, yeah, perfect deal. <laughs> And then uh, we hear a team meeting where Wade and Smith start to talk about Jofra Archer. And and I found this strange. They never mentioned once that Steve Smith was Archer's teammate at Rajasthan and Steve Smith was a captain for a while. Like I think that adds a different element to it, especially with what happens when he hits him in the head and everything to come. It's never mentioned once. It's almost like a deliberate, you know, let's tr- make it clear that Archer's the enemy. So they get to Lords and it rains at the home of cricket. You, you're not happy with Aggers calling it the home of cricket, Paul? <laughs> oh, look, it is the home of cricket. But um, all, all I'll say is that the the three venues that I've been to in England, Nottingham and Edgbaston, in my opinion, are my two favourite grounds I've ever been to above the SCG and the MCG. I just absolutely love them, even though they're only small grounds. The, Nottingham the was the first game, uh, test match I ever went to in England, 93. Yeah, I was there, um, can you believe it, 20 years later in 2013. The atmosphere there was everyone was up for the day. They were massively keen on England winning. They were warm in their applause of Australians. The noise was great. The atmosphere was great. It was the best mixture of a cricket and football crowd I've ever experienced. When I was at Lords in 2013, I did love it, but I couldn't help but notice that a huge percentage of the people were there just to go up the back and get absolutely plastered. And the rest of them, because they were sort of music is frowned upon and it, it just wasn't the same atmosphere. And I just thought, I do like Lords, but if I have a chance, I'll always go to somewhere um, outside of London to watch cricket rather than London. So, mm. yes, of course, it's the home of cricket. But I sometimes think, you know, if you are an Australian who's dreamt of going to watch a test match in England, my advice would be go to one of the grounds in uh, Manchester or Leeds or Nottingham or Birmingham rather than rather than Lords. Yeah, I think England's a great place to watch cricket. Uh, you know, I make a lot of fun about English people, but they, they cricket grounds there just have a, an atmosphere. I just think it's because they're specialist grounds. You know, when, when they just take up my advice and build the hotel at the SCG and kick out all the sports, we'll be on the right track. So it's raining at Lords. There's a really good sort of cut together bit of what's happening in the rain break and maybe something stuck out for you. But I liked Mitch Marsh. He was doing a kind of DJ impression and he was, he was looked like he was having fun. He looked like he's a fun guy to go out with and he's doing this DJ impression or something. And then Justin Langer walks in and he just picks up a bat and pretends to be shadow batting as soon as Langer walks in. Yeah, that was a bit funny. <laughs> um, so they fast forward to day four of this test. There was a lot of rain around at Lords. Australia were 80 for four and, you know, this this is probably, I would say so far, the most compelling series of scenes in the documentary I've seen that, you know, Waitley sets it up by saying Archer changed the whole series and, and we just see the build-up of the the Archer revving up the pace, the, the players in the dressing room getting nervous, Smith gets hit in the arm, um, you, you can see the Lions freaking out about having to bat and, and it really sets it up. And then uh, Smith gets hit in the head. I mean, that whole scene was very powerful. I found that when Smith was hit in the head, the, the immediate reaction in the team was telling the fact that everyone was frozen. It wasn't a panic. It was a, a shock. I mean, it was awful. It was awful viewing. Seeing Smith hit in the head and go down like that was horrific. I thought that it captured that moment well. I agree. The build-up was good. They had Jared Whiteley talking about how the clouds had come in, which gave it that sort of amphitheatre feeling. Lyon was was almost manic with his nerves about, you know, his palms are sweating uncontrollably, which, again, it shows the sort of the honesty of the physical reality of what he was about to go up to have to face. 
And that, that, that instant when Smith got hit, I was watching on TV and there was that split second where he didn't move. And that was a ghastly split second. Everyone's minds instantly just went to the death of Philip Hughes. And it was, um, yeah, it was a terrible moment. I guess a couple of things where, you know, Warner says to JL, oh, you know, Smith got hit just where Hughesy did. You know, just Warner was there the day Hughesy got hit. So it would be very, uh, you know, in his mind at the forefront and of his mind. And then Smith interviewed afterwards, you know, it's just saying how it's just not fair that he's okay and Hughesy wasn't. You know, Smith and Hughesy, great mates, teammates for a long time. I, c- I can see how he would feel that way. And, yeah. I don't think you have to scratch far under the surface for this group to bring back those horrific memories. I think it's it's there more than we think it is. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, you know, I still struggle to process it now, all these, was it, um, six years later. Yeah, and I'm sure the, the players have very deep scars about that. Uh, Siddle having to go out to bat after that happened. I mean, that was stuff. That was fucked. I felt so sorry for him. I mean, I've spoken to, you know, fast bowlers that play for Australia, like Hazelwood and that, about what it's like batting against test bowlers. And it, you know, you literally sometimes you can't see the ball. You know, it's like, you know, Hazel, say Hazelwood and Siddle, they're not picked for their batting. So, you know, they just see the best batsman in the world gets sconed in the head like that and they have to go out. I mean, they're a lot braver than I am. Yeah, again, it confirms the the physical reality of it, and, and Sybil saying that he had to turn his back on the action on the on the field because he just he didn't want to see that before he went out. And this is again, this is a guy who got forty in the first Test match. He can play, um, but against Archer on that wicket where the the bounce was starting to be a bit variable, and as you said, the best batsman in the world just been hit like that. It was a a terrifying thing to have to do. And so they they earn every cent of their money, in my opinion. Yeah, and then. Basically, Smith goes out to bat, but he's not great when, when he goes out to bat. He can hit a couple of fours. He gets out. And then at the end of day four, JL says, I think Smithy will be all right tomorrow. But then start of day five, news came out that Smith was out. Australian cricket deserve a lot of credit for the fact that he didn't come out on the final on the next day. That I, I think most people, if they'd seen Langer's press conference and when he said, yeah, he's going to have another um, concussion assessment the next morning, a lot of people would have cynically thought, yeah, well, I'm sure he'll pass that one, won't he? And the fact that he didn't, I think, speaks to the impartiality of the, the medical staff and, and the, the professionalism of the Australian setup that they did um, put the players' welfare before, before anything else. And I think that Cricket Australia has been a leader in bringing proto, uh, concussion protocols into, into test cricket, and uh, they should be applauded for that. Agree. So then we have Manus Lobachain, the first ever concussion sub in Test cricket, has the perfect character for it. He comes out to bat. England are in the ascendancy, storming to a, a series leveling victory on the last day at Lords. First ball, Manus gets hit in the head, flawed, and he jumps back up like a boxer. Incredible stuff from Manus. But my my thing that stood out for me was. There's a great shot of Ben Stokes's reaction in the background as Marnus gets hit, and the, the camera's just beautifully placed. You could you can see Stokes almost the horror of Stokes's face when he sees Marnus get hit uh, was hard to miss. I mean, the concern from Stokes was very prevalent. Makes me think maybe he's not a bad guy. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. I think that. Um Marnus's Labuschagne's reaction made it maybe not look as bad as it was because he jumped straight back up. But if you just see the actual impact and him falling down, it looks as bad as any bouncer you've ever seen. And, and Labuschagne's point was, I didn't want to be the first concussion sub to then have to need a concussion sub, and <laughs> he wouldn't have been. He mustn't have been far away. I mean, um, that, that would have been a, an extraordinary situation if he had to be um, substituted out and someone else brought in. And uh, so Marnus. That's really well. He saves the game for Australia. Everyone sort of roundly at the end of it sort of saying this is the, the making of Marnus Labuschagne. JL says, you know, sometimes as a test cricketer, you've got to get through that first tough patch like that and then you're, you're off to the races. Uh, it was interesting how upset Marnus was that he was given, and it rightly should be, he was given out off a, a bump ball. Not, not a clear, it was pretty clear, but we all know those catchers' decisions aren't. But Marnus comes back into the dressing room and he's almost crying 
as he's sitting there and he's like pleading with Tim Payne, like you, you, like in shock, like why was I given out? Like how could this have happened? I just, I like the sort of innocent sort of pleading with his captain for an answer about why it was given that way. I think as well he would have been disappoint, disappointed because there'd been a deflection off the short leg fieldsman, hadn't there? Um, like he'd, he'd swept the ball hard and low and then it had hit the, that fieldsman and ballooned up. So he was, he was doubly unlucky um, to be given out. So Australia gets out of the Lord's test with a draw. The series is still 1-0. JL says to the team, well done, but we need to get better to win the Ashes. And at the end, they dedicate that episode to Philip Hughes, which I thought was appropriate. And it ended one of the most compelling episodes of this series so far and leaves us with just one more to review next week, Paul, episode eight. Yeah, it was a great episode. And um, little wonder that all of the ads in the, in the lead up to the series really featured this, this moment, um, Smith being hit. It was a remarkable moment and um, a very good documentary altogether. And this is the best episode I've seen so far. All right, so we're going to be back in a moment with Can't Let It Go. But before that, I just want to ask you, if you can, please leave us a review on iTunes. That would be great or whatever podcast app you're listening to. And uh, in the next couple of weeks, I'll be reading out some of those reviews. If you want to email us, you can email us at auscricketpod. That's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com. Jaleesa is going to be coming back in the next few weeks rejoining the show so if you've got any questions for her shoot them in uh, and we're also the podcast is on twitter and instagram at oz cricket pod aus cricket pod we are launching our live show on youtube it's been delayed one week so that'll be the first week of june and we're also going to stream it on all our socials um, to show you that all right last break of the show then we're back with can't let it go You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. You're with Menas and Paul, and it's can't let it go time. That one bit of cricket news you just can't let go through to the keeper this week. And, well, I'm going to start things off with a bit of a different tactic, some baseball news. So I've got the, the one bit of baseball news you can't let go through to the catcher because MLB, the Major League Baseball Competition in America, are putting together a series of policies to try and get um, the game up and running again this summer in America. And I think some of these actually might apply to cricket. So, Paul, I've got a list of them, and you can tell me what you think of them. So one of the things they're suggesting is players not to shower at the ground, that they come dressed ready to play and leave in uniform. Um, Going to be smelly press conferences, but that might work. Uh, yeah, I think that that's fine. It's maybe a little bit harder in cricket, given that it, the, the game lasts... Um a lot longer and there are longer breaks. I think sometimes a fast bowler probably uh, at the lunch break probably craves the shower to get them going, um, get them fresh. Um, so yeah. the other thing is MLB plays so many games that I can see why they have to do that. With cricket, they're only just playing those few games that maybe um, they can put arrangements in place to ensure that the showering at the ground isn't a problem. So I I don't think they'll need to do that in cricket. Well, I hope we see the players come to the ground in their whites, ready to play. Spikes on, straight onto the field. Uh, Next one, no eating at restaurants while on tour. That's a a baseball thing, but I guess the players to cricket a bit that, you know, they're going to be in lockdown and going to have to eat at certain places. We are looking at different situations where America at the moment, sadly, is in a vastly worse position than Australia. And also MLB will presumably want to get underway a lot more quickly than cricket in Australia will get underway. So I think that the situation hopefully will be um, a lot different in Australia. When I used to play cricket for the Coogee Bay Rebels, the the done thing was if you got some runs, you'd go out that night at the Coogee Bay Hotel and stay on your whites all night on the dance floor. So I'm guessing that never happened to you? No, no, never. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, another thing MLB introducing is no high fives. That's an obvious one, but no team sheets. Now this is an interesting one because at the beginning of every cricket match, you know, the two captains swap team sheets. And I'm just wondering now whether the captains are going to like SMS each other, the 11s uh, out in the middle. Like, <laughs> they've both got their iPhones and they send a, 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 the team to each other. Also no spitting on the field. I'm happy about that one. Indoor batting practice is discouraged and this is what I think has legs, the practice pitchers should wear masks. So I'd like to see like Cummins, Hazelwood and Stark in some like 
badass looking masks, you know, decorate them, war paint kind of thing, coming in and bowling at the, the batters. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the medical thoughts on that would be, but that I think if you're exerting yourself heavily and breathing heavily, doesn't that render the mask pretty ineffective pretty quickly? Plus, it's one thing to stand on a mound and throw and pitch the ball, but to run in as fast as you can, you're breathing, you, know, you might find that you're constricted for air. So I don't think that's necessary for cricket. Okay, so so far you're not too keen on many of these ideas, Paul. And the last one is, and, and this is something that I don't think would happen in cricket because, as you say, it's a different situation, but they're looking at ways about, you know, in baseball, like social distancing, they're saying when a player is on first base, you know, there's a first base, there's a the runner, and there's, there's usually an umpire. It's saying, well, you should try and, like, keep your distance but that's not easy when you're playing a game. Like if you're trying to get someone out or get in the base, how can you keep your social distance? So what are we going to have at cricket? You know, the umpires, um, you know, everyone sort of spread out on the pitch, you know, the slip standing miles apart. It's going to be weird. Just ban the pickoff in baseball. It'd be a better game for it. Instead of the pitcher constantly eyeing first base and that whole charade, just pitch the ball champion. So that's it, my thoughts. MLB, they're putting in a lot of things together that I think cricket could look at as a test case for them. What about you, Paul? What's your can't let it go? Uh, just, how good mine was? How much you loved it this week? Yeah, that was it. I had a different one, but this is, um, this is <laughs> overtaken it. <laughs> um, no, uh, mine is just the, the watching the, the test reminded me of just how much fun I had in Edgebaston. And the cricket was just... Um, unbelievably good i'd be all for the ashes being made every three years rather than every four uh, i know that would probably not be welcomed by other nations apart from australia and england but i think the ashes is that good maybe it should be um, every three years rather than every four well that's it for this episode of cricket unfiltered thank you for listening to paul and i rabbit on about all the cricket we'll be back next week with our final review of the test episode eight can't wait Thanks, listeners. Back next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.